0: days technology is a good thing some days technology is not we are about to journey into one of the most incredible prophetic scriptures in the entire Bible and as we take a look at Daniel chapter 11 in the first 35 verses there are 135 fulfillment prophetically It's like reading a history book. Only problem is, Daniel wrote it hundreds of years before it took place. In fact, today, if you were to go to college and ask them about Daniel, one of the things that they talk about Daniel is they say, well, Daniel had to be written during the Maccabean age. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they said Daniel had to be written during the Maccabean age because he knows too much about all the things that were taking place during that time. So there's just no way that Daniel wrote it when the Bible says he wrote it. There's just one problem. Before we get too far into the Medo-Persian empires and we begin studying about the kings that Daniel talks about, we're going to come to the second king in the Medo-Persian empire who... Developed the Alexandrian city and also the Alexandrian library. The Alexandrian library, because most of the Jewish people at that time were speaking Greek, decided that they wanted a copy of their scriptures in the Greek. So in 270 B.C., the Old Testament was the first book ever translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. 270 B.C. is still... In at least 50 years and sometimes 100 years in some of the prophecies away, and Daniel was in it. The Maccabean time would have come about 100 years after that. So somehow, if it was written during the Maccabean age, somehow the guy transported himself back in time and had Daniel put in the Septuagint 100 years earlier. The problem is whenever... You you look at Scripture, and, and tonight the Scripture we're going to be looking at is incredible. And unfortunately, the reason I was saying technology is a bummer is I had some slides that listed out all the different kings. I'm going to be throwing a bunch of names at you guys, and they're not going to be up on the, on the slide for you. But later on, if you want to get copies of all that stuff, I can get it for you. But the point is, as we go through, step by step by step, 35 verses, 135 prophecies fulfilled... It's one of the most incredible sections of prophecy in the whole entire Bible. Folks, when we look at the Bible, some of the things that we need to understand. The Bible was written by 40 different authors. You ever play the game telephone? We sit around in a circle and you send one message around. And by the time it gets around, it's all messed up. Well, the Bible was written by 40 different people over 1,500 years. That's the span of time. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, 1,500 years, 40 different people, every walk of life, you have shepherds and kings, prophets, prisoners, guys wrote from prison, guys wrote from palaces, folks wrote from the shepherd's fields, all these different places where where God brought his word through. Folks, when we look at the Bible, we have one message, God's redemption of man. The entire Bible is, it flows together. We could, we, there's no way we could play telephone with 40 different people and take 1,500 years to do it and come up with the same message. But the Bible does. Throughout its history, mankind has tried to destroy the Bible. Voltaire, the great, uh, the great French philosopher, he said that he would drum out the Bible in his days. In his time, he would see the end of Christianity. It's so ridiculous. Now out of Voltaire's house, they print Bibles. Because man's not going to squash God's Word. God's Word is going to be carried through. And folks, unlike every other holy book known to mankind, the Bible is one-third, 30% prophecy. And the prophecies that we're going to be reading about tonight are pretty precise. And if you were to open up a history book, you could follow right along. Right with us. What Daniel laid out, what God gave to Daniel, what Daniel wrote hundreds of years before these events took place. So as we take a look at Daniel chapter 11, remember, we're in that second part of the book of Daniel. First six books were the history. Last six books are all his visions, all the prophecies, all the things that the Lord gave to him. The first six follow chronology. The last six follow a chronology. They don't mesh together because one is his history and then he starts over again and talks about all the visions and prophecies that the Lord gave him. So as we take a look at Daniel chapter 11, that's what we're dealing with. We're not going past 35 verses and I'm not counting all 135 prophecies either. But if you want to, hopefully it will whet your appetite and you'll desire to go into it and see what you can find. Now, he begins in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, I'm sorry, I was reading Daniel chapter 10, we're in 11. Also, I'm sorry, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, first thing we have to come to, who's talking? All we got to do is back up. We back up and it says... That Daniel was praying for an answer and God sent an angel. You remember? And the angel told Daniel about the spiritual warfare that he'd been involved in. That he'd been withheld by the prince of Persia. That he fought with him for 21 days. And then the archangel Michael was sent to relieve him so that he could come to him and bring him the answer. A lot of people believe this angel is Gabriel. For our purpose, we'll call him Gabriel. Could have been any angel. But we're going to call him Gabriel. And so we're going to, Gabriel begins to tell him. He says in verse 20, Do you know why I came to you? Now I must return to fight the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The angel is talking. When Darius the Mede, when he took over, he, he was a, a, a vassal set up by Cyrus who ran the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Darius I is the one who was in charge of Babylon when Daniel was cast into the lion's den. The angel says, it was me who lifted him up, who strengthened him, who guided him. It was all part of this spiritual battle that was taking place. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. He begins with this prophecy. In Persia, there's going to be three more kings, and the fourth one is going to be the richest of all of them. Well, here are those three kings that took place. As those three kings begin to move forward, we have Cambyses, uh, Artaxerxes, and Darius uh, Hystapus. I won't pretend to be able to pronounce all their names, but that's the three kings. Those three uh, Medo-Persian emperors came up after Cyrus. They rose up. And then he says the fourth one is going to be richer than all of them. The fourth one, his name is Xerxes. You remember the book of Esther? When Esther goes before the king, that's the Xerxes... That we're talking about. That fourth king that was richer than them all. Now look how he sets them apart. The fourth will be far richer than them all. And by his strength and through his riches. He shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Xerxes is the one who stirred up the hornet's nest in Greece. You remember the story of Thermopylae. The the 300 Spartans that led nearly 5,000 um, Athenian warriors into the, to the, the valley of Thermopylae, if you will, this canyon that they, that they were able to fight Xerxes' hordes. Xerxes, who, who claimed to train 2 million men in his army. that's Xerxes' claim. I wasn't there to count it. I don't know how many he had. But he came down against Greece, and he stirred up that hornet's nest. You remember the story of Thermopylae, right? The, that the, the Greeks, the Spartans, held them for three days. They held him for three days, and then the armies they, their back was broken, they circled around on a shepherd's path, got behind the army the, the Spartan army at Thermopylae, and so all the Spartans, everyone, every last one, all three hundred, stayed and were slaughtered by Xerxes, and that stirred up the hornet's nest of Greece. Now Xerxes is so frustrated because his his, his naval fleet had gone through a storm, and much of his navy was destroyed. He had spent three days fighting. His guys were all messed up. Their heads were all messed up. They weren't in the battle. So Xerxes is going to go home, and that whole event uh, with Esther is going to take place around that time. But it was Xerxes, richer than them all, began to build the army that's going to stir up the nest. He stirs up the people against Greece, and eventually... It's going to be the cause of another ruler. Another ruler that's going to come. His name is Alexander. Who's going to build on that same thought. Just as we did here in the United States. Remember the Alamo? Remember the chant that they, they had as the Alamo was, was destroyed. And all those folks that were killed. Remember the Alamo became the chant for that army. For us to gather up the army and, and go to war uh, against Mexico. Well, here... It was Alexander's chant, remember Thermopylae. And all the Greeks that were killed that were going to come up and begin to take that empire from the Medo-Persians. But Daniel's told about it. Daniel's told it's going to be Xerxes, the fourth king, the one who's richer than all, who's going to stir up this plot in Greece. Okay, and as we look at this, let me give you a quick breakdown on it all. As we take a look at at, uh, the scriptures in in verses 1 and 2, we're going to focus on the Persian Empire. We're just closing up that part. Then in verses 3 and 4, we have the Greek Empire. In verses 5 to 35, we have the Seleucid and the Ptolemy rivalry. That time which takes place between the Testaments. Between the Old Testament and the coming of the New. Then in verses 36 through 39, we have the willful king. A pattern or picture of the Antichrist. In verses 40 to 45... We have the Armageddon scenario. So in the first two verses, we're looking at Persia. So we talked about Xerxes stirring up that hornet's nest. Now look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise. That mighty king is Alexander. Alexander is going to come up. Who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. His kingdom is going to be divided into four, four parts. It's going to be divided according to the the four winds of heaven, but listen to this, not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others beside these. What's going to take place is that Alexander's death, he's going to be asked, Alexander, who should rule? And Alexander is going to say, Let the strong have it. And so Alexander basically is going to break down to his four generals fighting it out. I think it starts with six, but they fight down to four. And they divide his kingdom north, south, east, west. It breaks up into four parts. Those four generals are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now Seleucus and Ptolemy, the Ptolemies are going to be the kings of the south. And the Seleucids are going to be the kings of the north. The kings of the north and the kings of the south. And that's going to come up here briefly uh, as we go on a little bit further. Now, it says in verse 5. Now, in verse 5, we're going to focus in on the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Why? Because the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are going to battle north and south. Guess what's between them? Little strip of land called Israel. So you got. You've got the the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north and Israel in between. And for the next 130 years, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are going to fight over what piece of ground? Israel. Whichever one is strongest at the time retains control of Israel. Whichever one is weaker is looking for an opportunity to go back to war so that he can once again gain that plot of ground. Not that Israel was so important to them But it was just this desire to destroy, to have, to have what they didn't have. And here we have God laying it all out for us before it takes place. Why is that important? Listen, God's writing to us, we're reading this as history, but to Daniel, it was future. What does that mean for you and I? It was so perfect. It's so perfect as it goes through and lists out all the things that are going to take place. Here's what we want to gather from that. Folks, there's a lot of prophecy left in the Bible to be fulfilled. In the same way, in the same way that God fulfilled the prophecies of Daniel, he will yet fulfill the prophecies of Ezekiel 38, 39, the book of Revelation, the prophetic scriptures that aren't fulfilled yet in Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of those will take place just like these in Daniel did. And we can hang our hat on it. We can know it's true because of these scriptures that we're going over in Daniel chapter 11, also Daniel chapter 9, and many other places in the scripture where we have fulfilled prophecy. So as we go through, now we come to to verse 5, and we're going to deal with the Seleucid And the Ptolemy rivalry. Again, this takes place between the Old and New Testament in time frame. And it says, now also the king of the south. Now, so we don't get confused. The kings of the south, their names will always start with the word Ptolemy. The kings of the north, their names will always start with either Antiochus or Seleucus. One of those two names. Okay, so if we say the Ptolemies... We're talking about the south. If we say the Seleucus or, or Antiochus, we're talking about the north. Now, as we look at them, it's going to get confusing because the Bible is going to go through 130 years of history and lay it all out before it happened. So let's take a look. It begins in verse 5. Now, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion and his dominion shall be a great dominion, well the first king of the south is Ptolemy the I, and Ptolemy I has a prince, his name is Seleucius. Seleucius becomes the first king of the north, Seleucius Nicator, and Ptolemy the first. now Ptolemy first he he's got Seleucius as a part of his kingdom. Seleucius has these plans, these designs he becomes greater than Ptolemy he becomes greater than the one through whom he came up now in verse 6 it says now at the end of some years they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement well here's what happens the king of the of the south sends his daughter bernice to go to the king of the north and the king of the north During this time, the king of the north is Antiochus II. Antiochus II was the son of uh, Seleucus I. Actually, I'm sorry, Antiochus I. And he's going to have a wife. This wife that he has, her name is Laodicea. But the king, the other king, gives his daughter to make a peace. And he's going to join. He thinks he's going to join the two kingdoms. He's going to join those two kingdoms together. But look what the scripture says. He gives his daughter Bernice. And it says now to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority will stand. So not only is Bernice not going to have authority. But neither is the king to whom she was given. Why? Because Laodicea his wife. His first wife. She didn't like the whole gig. So she poisoned him. She killed him, and she set her son on the throne. She murdered Bernice, and so this whole plot that the king had to take care of, of the kingdom, it all falls away. So she did not retain the power of her authority because she was murdered, and neither did the king because he was poisoned. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. So Bernice loses the struggle for power. The the wife the king or the 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 queen Laodicea poisons her and kills her and kills her child as well. But look at verse seven. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who will come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them. And prevail. Ptolemy the third was the brother of Bernice. Ptolemy the third. Now Ptolemy, again, we're dealing with the the kings of the south. Ptolemy is not very happy about what happened to his sister. So Ptolemy the third, he's going to put together an army and he's going to go after them. He's going to go and and set things to right. So he enters the fortress of the king of the north to deal with them. And to prevail. And so he wipes out. He invades Syria. He overcomes the king of the north and goes as far as Babylon. As far as Babylon. And so this branch of her roots moves forward. Verse 8. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt. With their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. I don't want us to lose track because we can get all swimming in, in how this all works. But folks, we're reading what God gave Daniel hundreds of years before it all took place. And we're answering verse by verse by verse exactly what took place in history. That's incredible. It's precise. It's perfect. As we look at how it's all coming together, don't lose sight of the fact that that this was all future to Daniel, but it's all past to us, and we can see how it all works. Well, it says he carries the gods of Egypt. Well, he brought 25, history tells us, 2,500 idols that he brought out of of the area of Syria through to Babylon. He brought 25 idols back 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver. And the king of the south lived four years and ruled four years longer than the king of the north. Just like the Bible said, he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Right down to, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling for me as I look. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, Seleucus II would try to, to reclaim what, he had, what had been lost. But Seleucus II, he's going to get sent back defeated. Seleucus II isn't able to do it. And so the Bible says, The king of the north will try, but return to his own land. Seleucus II. However, verse 10, His sons shall stir up strife. His sons' name were Seleucus III and antiochus the third antiochus the third is also known as antiochus the great his two sons he said will stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces and one sh- shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through so these two sons they start to move forward with their father the first one to rule is Seleucus the second but Seleucus II, he doesn't rule for very long. In fact, he gets murdered in one of the military conquests that he's on. So his brother, Antiochus III, takes over. And one of them will enter into the land. One of them goes through Israel. Every time these two fight, their armies are marching through Israel, messing with all the people in Israel and going to their enemies and fighting So here, Antiochus, one shall certainly come through and overwhelm and pass through. And he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Now, verse 11. Now the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So here we have the king of the south, angry about what's taking place, so he's moved with rage against the king of the north. We see this take place against Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. The king is, is uh, Ptolemy. We're, we're down to <clears throat> Ptolemy the IV, Ptolemy Philippator. And so Ptolemy, he's going to march against, he's going to go against uh, Antiochus III. And Antiochus III is going to build this conglomeration of forces. He's going to use some folks from Egypt. He's going to use uh, some, some folks uh, from Greece. He's going to try to build up this army. But it's not going to help him. And he's not going to prevail. And so the king of the south ends up winning. He, he defeats him in that battle. But when he is taken away from the multitude his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So the king of the south is all proud of what he's done. Ptolemy the fourth, he's all excited, but he's going to get cast down because of this pride that he has. And we're going to see Antiochus third be able to come back in. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build the siege mound and take a fortified city, And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. So Antiochus III comes back in. He comes back again to defend and to to take the land, and this time he's able to do it. And he's going to hold the land probably for, for the longest period of time of any of those other kings, Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. Now he goes on and says in verse 16, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, And no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. This is Antiochus III. When he finally wins, he's going to go into Israel. And Israel actually thinks it's a good thing. They're happy to be rid of the other guy. But then Antiochus III comes and he's just as rotten as the rest of them. During this whole period of time, 130 years of fighting back and forth, all that happens to Israel is it's trodden underfoot. Over and over and over again. And this is after Malachi. And if you look in the scriptures, it takes place on the timeline. After Malachi, Malachi pronounced a curse on the children of Israel. He pronounced a curse and there's going to be from Malachi to the Gospels, the silent 400 silent years. And during that 400 silent years, this 130 years takes place. Toward the end of that time. And so we see Israel trampled and Daniel laying out for us exactly what was going to happen and who was going to be where and how it was all going to work. Now the scripture goes on. Now he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or before him. In about 197 B.C., Antiochus III decides he's going to make a peace treaty with Egypt. He's going to make a peace treaty with the the kings of the south, or Ptolemy V. Now, Ptolemy V, who's the king of the south, whom Antiochus III finally beat, was four years old when Antiochus III beat him. So, no big deal, is it? A four-year-old king... I mean, you know, it's all his generals and advisors that are running everything. But that's when Antiochus 3rd won. He beat a four-year-old. What glory is there in that? I beat a four-year-old. Anyhow, when the four-year-old is ten, he's going to offer him his daughter. He's going to give his daughter as an arranged marriage. The plan is that they would be wed and he would be able to take that kingdom under his wing, and it would become his. But what happened is, his daughter, whose name was Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra, but like the grandmother or great-grandmother of the Cleopatra, she was faithful. She hung with her husband. This, at the time when they were finally wed, he was 14. And so she, she's going to stand with him, not with her, her father Antiochus III, She's going to not turn the kingdom over to him. She's going to band together with another country, an up-and-coming one. Maybe you've heard of it, Rome. And Rome is going to be a thorn in Antiochus III's side from here on out. In fact, it's Rome that's going to destroy Antiochus III's ability to do anything. So here he tries to work all these things out with his daughter but his daughter doesn't stand with him scripture told us it would take place verse 18 after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many but a ruler shall bring the reproach against him or against them to an end and with the reproach removed he shall return back on him and he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land but he shall stumble and fall and not be found what's going to take place Well, listen, he turns toward Greece and he begins to fight with Greece. But he runs into this fella named Hannibal. And Hannibal, who was a, 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 a general, he tells him that he thinks he should go to war against the Romans. And so he does. And the Romans obliterate him. Wipe out his army. Take all of his holdings in Europe. Take all of his holdings in Asia Minor, force him to pay at that time, at that day, roughly around $30 million in gold tribute. I don't know what that would equal to today, but at that time, he had to pay that much gold tribute. Literally, they ruin him. They ruin him. He's so angry, he goes home to his own fortress, breaks into his own temples in his own land to steal the gold out of those temples, and angry worshipers at those temples kill him. And that's his end. Antiochus the Great. He falls apart, and the Scripture told us that it would happen. Look, he said, Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall apart. And not be found. And so, he's put to death. Now there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Folks, that is a precise prophecy, isn't it? The one who's going to take his place is going to establish taxes against Israel. Well, I wonder who that could be. Well, if we just scroll down in our history books, we come right to him. His name was the Fourth. He demands taxes from Israel. Seleucus IV, he's going to do this work. He will impose taxes on a glorious kingdom, but within a few days he'll be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Well, what happens to him? Well, let's see. He he imposes taxes on Israel, so he sends over to Israel his treasurer. His treasurer's name is, see if I can find it, uh, Heliodotus. Heliodotus, he sends over... And he gathers up the taxes in Israel and he comes back and and he's looking at all this money he's got and he's thinking, this is a pretty good deal. And this king's not that great a guy, so he poisons him. The treasurer poisons the king. The king dies. But in the meantime, there's another fellow behind the scenes trying to come into power. He is Antiochus IV. We know him as Antiochus Epiphany. The, the pattern or picture in the scriptures of the Antichrist. He's working behind the scenes, making deals. And so this treasurer thinks he's poisoned the king, and he's going to take it. But Antiochus 4 steps into the throne. By using intrigue, he takes power. Well, look what the scripture says. And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now when we talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, and remember when we look prophetically at the Scriptures, the Hebrew mindset of prophecy is to look for patterns. So we're looking for patterns. Now when we read Revelation chapter 6, the first seal being open, we see a man on a white horse coming with a bow in his hand, promising peace, Daniel told us in in Daniel chapter 9. He's going to take power by intrigue. He's not going to fight. He's not going to kill nobody to take it. He's going to be using politics. And he's going to work the politics to his favor, and boom, there he is, king, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. He He was not even in the line to be king. But he's going to become king. He's going to become king by intrigue. And here we see the scriptures telling us that that is exactly what he's going to do. Now, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. He made peace with the nation of Israel. And then he went into the nation of Israel for war. Now, not necessarily against them, but like I said, he passes through, tramples over them to get to his enemy. And when he does, look what it says, he will, uh, and also the prince of the covenant. There was a high priest, Onias III, that Antiochus Epiphanes killed in order to take power. Onias III, the high priest, didn't go along with Antiochus Epiphany, Antiochus IV, so he killed him. He killed the prince of the covenant, the high priest, the one appointed uh, uh, by God for that position for that time. And that's something that we see Antiochus doing. It's also something that lays out pattern for us when we consider the work of the Antichrist and what he's going to be doing during the tribulation. Now he goes on. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong, With a small number of people. He's all wheeling and dealing. What do we see? In Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist comes in and peaceably he takes the throne, he takes the power, he's in control. What follows right behind him? War. War. Famine. Pestilence. All those things follow him because he deals deceitfully. Same way here with Antiochus Epiphany. He's the pattern. He's the model, if you will, of the one who is to come. He's the model for us to, to gather from, to glean from. So, he will enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done or his forefathers. He will disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, And the riches. What did he do? He went in and he robbed from his own places. He stole all the gold from his own places. The richest parts of his kingdom. He would go in and he would plunder. And he attacked his enemy when he least expected it. When he was promising peace. He would come and bring the sword. And that's how he was able to win the battles that he won. So, And it says, And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds. But only for a time. It's not going to be forever. The same way that that the rule of the Antichrist is going to be. Only for a time. The same way you and I go through difficulties. You know, one of the greatest verses in the Bible is, it came to pass. Because it did, right? It came to pass. It doesn't stay forever. And as the Lord lays this out, we're going through this litany and all these different kings and all this junk that they did and and the Scripture laying out prophetically, one after the other, after the other, after the other. All these things are going to take place. All these things that are happening. And as it lays them all out, when he comes to the worst one of the bunch, he reminds us. He doesn't rule forever. There's one, the Scripture says, rules forever. When Jesus takes the throne of David, he will rule forever. His kingdom will not pass. This earth will pass, and heaven will pass, but his kingdom will not. His kingdom will be eternal, everlasting. It's important when we consider that, when we think about what the scripture is laying out here, that we get into our minds that whatever's going on today, you know, today for some of us, today was a drag, you know, for some people today was a blessing. Isn't that the way it is every day? I mean, for one group, folks go outside and they're they're happy that there's snow and the kids are playing and frolicking in the fields. Meanwhile, the folks who got to work in it or the farmers who are trying to get in their crop, they're just scratching your head what do i do but it's the way it is every day is it that way forever nothing is forever nothing and we want to remember that we want to remember the one thing that is forever is jesus christ and that's where our eyes need to be we think the situation we find ourselves in today is is going to last forever but it's not You're not always going to be poor. You're not always going to be rich. Life's not always going to be hard. Life's not always going to be easy. But God is always going to be good. And his kingdom will never pass. And once we put ourselves in his hand, is he able to keep us? Did he know? Did he tell Daniel everything that was going to take place? Did he lay out for him all the things that would take place through the Seleucid and the Ptolemies and all the intrigue and all the, this girl's going to do that to her husband. This guy's going to poison him. All these things that take place, he laid it all out verse by verse, 135 prophecies that men much smarter than me can lay out for you and just number them down and show you a history book right next to it. He laid all those things out for us. Is that God able to keep you? Is that God able to establish you? Is that God able to carry you through? Hey, Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't forever. The folks who had to live through him, there was a bit of a drag for them. But it wasn't forever. He did not rule forever, only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. So here we have again the king of the north going to battle against the king of the south. And so he will stir up his courage against the king of the south with a great army. He's going to go fight Ptolemy the fourth, And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a, a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. What happens? Listen, Ptolemy is going to get bad advice from his advisors. His advisors are going to give him this great plan. Here's this great plan of how to win. The only problem is... They were wrong. And so he loses the war. And so Ptolemy's going to lose the war. Ptolemy, uh, ph- Philometer, he's going to lose the battle. Look what it says. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. Those who sat at his table, those who were his advisors, they destroyed him by their advice. And his army will be swept away and many shall fall down slain. But look at verse 27. Now both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy, Antiochus was his uncle, and he was his nephew. And they sat at the same table speaking lies to one another and having plans with one another. Well, they end up fighting one another, but nonetheless, the Bible said they would share the same table. They would share the same food, and history tells us that they did. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still, what's it say? Be at the appointed time. It is appointed unto man, the Bible says, once to die. There is an appointed time. And God is the one who keeps that time. No king, no ruler, no evil will last one day longer than God says. And if it is going on, if we're caught up in that time, we can trust that God is working out His plan. He's bringing forward His plan. And ultimately in the end, It will be for our good and God's glory. That's how he works. All the way through, page to page. All the way through the scriptures, that's what he's doing. So it will end at the appointed time. Now, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So Antiochus is all excited. He won. He comes walking through Israel and decides to wipe them all out. Go through, burn down their buildings, attack them as they're going through because what? Israel is that bridge that goes from one kingdom to the other. And whatever army comes through just tramples them. Just tramples over it. And here comes Antiochus. Should be happy. He won. But no, he's going to trample over them all. Coming through, he's going to trample them and do damage. And return to his own land. Now, at the appointed time, he shall return and go go toward the south. Once again, he's going to go to war. Go toward the south. Once again, against the Ptolemies. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. What's going to happen to him? Look, it says in verse 30, For ships from Cyprus, you might want to make a note, that's the Roman Navy. Antiochus is going to meet the Roman Navy. Ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So this time he goes, once again, to go to war, only he bumps into the Russian Navy. And the Russian Navy obliterates him. Now, as he's going back home, he passes through Israel again. But now he's mad. And he does damage. As he's going back through that land bridge, he's trampling over the people. But folks, there's more to it than that. He's going to lay out for us a pattern of end time events so that we can understand and know the things that the Antichrist will do in that latter time that the Scriptures are talking about. Well, look at what he does. Take a look. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He's going to make deals to Jews who will turn their back, and he did, who turned their back on their faith and decided to come alongside and help him. And those Jews who turned their back on their faith are the ones who help him enter into the temple. Look what the Scripture says. And the forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. First thing they do, they break into the temple and sacrifice a pig on the altar and throw pig's blood on everything inside the temple. They splash pig's blood on the veil. They splash pig's blood on on all the different implements. Everything, the, the Ark of the Covenant, all of it. He threw pig's blood on it all. First thing he did. Second thing, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices. He took away Israel's ability to worship. He stopped it. No worship, no other worship, only one worship. And that's the third thing that he did. The third thing he did, and placed there the abomination of desolation. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation sitting in a holy place spoken of by Daniel the prophet, run. Now it's in the book of Matthew, and he was talking to the Jews. He's telling them to run. When you see the abomination of desolation, well, that happened in the Maccabean time. That was the Maccabean. The Maccabean revolt is a revolt in Israel that kicks out Antiochus Epiphanes. That was already past. Why is Jesus talking about it like it's yet future? Because it is. Because this was a model, a picture, a painting of one who is to come. And when you see him, he's going to do the same things. Antiochus Epiphany becomes a picture of the Antichrist for us. Now those who do wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt. One of the greatest revolts of history. In fact, it's, it's, it is uh, interesting to read up on it and, and to see the things that took place and how that all started. But the Maccabees, they're going to kick out Antiochus Epiphanes. They're going to clean the temple. They're going to make new implements for the temple. And they're going to light the, the menorah, the candle that was inside the temple. There's only one light In the temple. That was the menorah. Only one light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You know the middle stand of the menorah was called the vine. You know what the other parts were called? The branches. One vine. Any idea how many branches? Six. Six branches. One vine. Made seven total. Six is the number of men. The vine, the one, seven, number of perfection We're perfect in who? In Christ. He's the light. Well, they lit the menorah, but they only had enough oil to last how long? One day. But that oil burned for the eight days it took them to purify. And so we have what's known as the Festival of Lights today, or Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And it all had its foundation with Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabeans that were going to kick him out. Now it says, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. All those things took place during the Maccabean revolt. They were burned, they were slaughtered, they were killed, they fought for over three years to be able to kick him out. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, But many shall join with them by intrigue. What's that mean? Nobody wanted to come out and say we're siding with the Maccabees. But everybody who hated Antiochus Epiphanes is working behind the scenes in intrigues. Okay, what that means is, or what took place in history is that very same thing. People gave their support, just like we do in the United States now, right? If we don't want to fight the battle, what do we do? We send over arms and money to the people who are fighting them. That's supporting them by intrigue. And that's the Bible said what would take place in the Maccabean revolt, and it's what we see taking place in history. And verse 35, "And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time." What's he saying? He's, "Hey? There's more going on than what meets the eyes. There's more happening than what you see. Everything that was taking place, everything was for its appointed time. Everyone who fell, everyone who was a part of it, everyone who believed God and sided with God's people to deliver them from Antiochus Epiphanes were all acting out prophecy. They were all painting a picture of the tribulation. And those same things that happened then, God says, will happen again. They're going to happen. Folks, we read 35 verses, 135 fulfilled prophecies in those 35 verses. What God said is still going to happen is still going to happen. One of those things that God says is still going to happen It's the rapture of his church. The rapture of his church at the appointed time. Paul says, I don't want you all to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. For we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. For the trump of God will will sound the shout of the archangel and the dead in Christ, they'll rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be gathered up together with them. And so we shall always be with him. Thessalonians goes on to tell us this. You are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Folks, that seven-year period of time, Revelation chapter 6 tells us that when the tribulation begins, day one of the tribulation, it is called the wrath of the Lamb. What did I say Thessalonians said? For you are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through your Lord Jesus Christ. In the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus very definitively told the church of Philadelphia what? If you're faithful, I will save you from all these things which shall come upon the whole world. Very definitively, we have his promises. For we are not appointed unto wrath. Folks, In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. That is the wrath of this world upon this world and upon us. But what you will not stand is the wrath of God. And this is why, folks, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for us. There is no more. If we must be purified somehow in fire, if we must be purified, then Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And I have to do something else. But that's not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say, He died once for all. Over. And Paul said, You are not appointed unto wrath. Remember we were talking about Pictures, right? Pictures in the Bible. There was a judgment coming in Genesis chapter 6, right? The flood was coming in Genesis chapter 6. Noah would would preach for 120 years. He'd build the ark. When he got the ark finished, God would shut the door. Nobody would get on the door. and, And God would preserve Noah through the tribulation or through the flood until the other side. Take him out on the other side. That's a perfect example of what God's going to do to the nation of Israel through the tribulation period. But you remember this fella that came in chapter 5? His name was Enoch. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Before the flood came, God raptured Enoch. And he didn't go through the flood. He didn't go through that time. But God preserved, he preserved Noah and his family, the nation of Israel. You remember the story about Lot? Remember Lot being in Sodom and Gomorrah? There Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels come. They're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The judgment of God. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And so when the angels come, who are they looking for? Lot. Well, well, the angel tells Lot, We cannot destroy this city as long as you are here. And the angel put his hand on him and drug him out of the city because he was dragging his feet so much. They drug Lot out of the city, and after Lot was out of the city, God's judgment came. Does God know how to carry His people through judgment? He does. And we need to recognize, we study Daniel chapter 11 and we see those prophetic scriptures, we see the patterns of God laid out very specifically, and we see them all being fulfilled, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Then we know the rest are also going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen. John would write in John, Now, everyone who has this hope within himself purifies himself even as he is pure. Why? Because if we live every day like Jesus is coming today, that changes how I behave that day. If I live every day. Jesus said what? No man knows the hour when he comes. We want to talk about pattern? Let's talk about the pattern of the of the Hebrew wedding. In the Hebrew wedding, the man and woman would sign a contract together, a betrothal. The moment they signed that contract, it was binding. The ceremony hadn't taken place. There was no consummation of the marriage. But it was binding the moment they signed that contract. And you know, when they signed that contract, what they would do? They would break bread together and drink wine. And then the husband would say, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine again until I drink it with you in my new house. The house that I am going to prepare for you. Sound like anybody? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? When he, when he shared the, 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 wine, the bread and the wine in communion with his disciples, didn't he say, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until I drink it with you in my Father's house. It's the picture. It's the pattern. It's all throughout Scripture and not hard to find. It's not hard to, to grasp or pull out. So then what would take place? He would go to his father's house and he would build an addition on his father's house. And he wouldn't even know when he was going for his bride. You know who knew? The father. The father would watch his son build. And when the building was finished, when the father thought it was ready, he would say, son, go get your bride. The bride over here, she's told, be ready because you don't know when he's coming. So you got to be ready. So she'd get all her stuff ready. It would all be all around the room that whole time. It might be a, a whole year before he came, maybe more. But then he, this guy, he'd, he'd be building, and one day the father would come to him and say, go get your bride. And he would go, and they'd sneak. And they always went late at night. It was fun for them. So they'd sneak, and they'd get close to the house. And then the bridal party would all sound a trumpet, and they'd... Ha- start hollering and, and wooting it up as they got probably a block away. they start making all this noise and the bride, she'd wake up and she'd get all excited and she'd tell her bridesmaid, here he come, grab the stuff, guys. And they'd get all their stuff and they'd meet him in the street. And then he would take her to his father's house. Seven days for a wedding feast. Seven days they would celebrate a wedding feast and which time in those seven days the bride wouldn't be seen at all. Not a peep. Seven days, she's gone. Sound familiar? The Bible tells us that there's going to be the, the, the feast, the bridal feast for the Lamb. The bride of the Lamb. She's going to feast for seven years in solitary confinement with who? Jesus Christ. With Him, set aside... Not the wrath of God poured out upon her, but rather in a place of safety with Him. Why? Because He bore the wrath that was supposed to be hers. He bore it. He paid the price. He bore the stripes. He was crucified. He sets us free. All of those things, and that whole bridal, and that whole marriage betrothal, the whole system that they had, every single part of it points to something that jesus does for his bride points to something that jesus accomplishes for us revelation chapter four is the last time you see the church do you know that the church is mentioned some well i don't know 20 some times in the first three chapters and then at the end of chapter four just gone just gone where did she go she with jesus she with him she's with him that's what we're looking for folks if daniel chapter 11 is true then all of that is true too and that's our hope we put our faith and trust in jesus we know we're going to have hard times i'm not telling you before things get hard you're just going to disappear and nothing hard's ever going to happen jesus said in this world what you will have tribulation but be of good cheer i overcame this world and He'll give us the strength we need for everything we face until the appointed time when the trumpet sounds and He calls us home. It's all true. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do we do thank You for this time. We can study the Word this time. We can open Your Word and apply Your Word. And, And allow your word to direct us and guide us and lead us. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would always be those people who are willing to allow your word to speak to us. Allow your word to define. Allow your word to direct. Father, that we wouldn't have our our eyes clouded by some other worldview, some other plan, some other issue. But God, we just want the truth. We want the truth of your word to permeate into our hearts. So, Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for your truth ringing through on every page. We thank you for the opportunity to stand before you, Father God, and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's happiness. We thank you that one day, God, we will be in your presence and will never be out of it again. And that day has an appointed time. So, God, we just thank you. We praise you. We pray, God, that you would establish us in the truth of your word and that the truth of your word would accomplish what Jesus said it would. It will set us free. So, Father, we thank you for this time and we seek to honor and glorify you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. On Sunday nights, we.